0: Today on Family Talk. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Dobson, and you're listening to Family Talk. Ryan and Dr. Meeker are not in the studio today, but I think you're going to be captivated by what you're about to hear. You'll hear my second interview with Luke Zamperini, the son of the national hero, Louis Zamperini, Lewis was one of the fastest runners in the world and he uh, competed in the 1936 Olympics. He joined the Army Air Corps and he fought in the Pacific theater of the war. With that, let's pick up the story as Luke told it in the second part of this three-day interview.
1: Pearl Harbor happened uh, December 7, 1941. And this was May 1943 when he went on this reconnaissance mission. They were flying at just under 1,000 feet below the cloud cover looking to see if they could find any wreckage or any survivors of this B-25 that had uh, ditched there. Uh, When the airplane that they were using, this B-24, was a borrowed plane and it had engine problems. And first, the number one engine on the left side of the plane went out. And then eventually, the number two engine went out, and at you know at under a thousand feet, this plane just cartwheeled straight into the ocean, uh, landing on its left side, and just blew to pieces. Hmm. Luke, when we finished the the program last time, ran out of time.
0: Um, your father had been on the sea for I think it was forty seven days.
1: That's 40, correct.
0: Forty seven days. Uh, For water, they were capturing uh, rainwater, and that's that's what kept them alive. And they were eating albatross, which is horrible unless you starve them to death, and they were. And uh, so they were out there waiting, hoping against hope and probably praying, even though your dad was not a believer, not a Christian at that time. So there they were for all this time on that sea.
1: Yes, and on day 27, they did hear an airplane coming overhead, uh, and uh, they saw what appeared to be a B-25 bomber. So they set the flares off, put dye in the water, and they had a little brass mirror that they would use the sun's light to reflect it at the plane. And, of course, that finally caught the, the pilot's attention. The, the plane came diving down on them. They'd been rescued. They That's thought. the thinking they're being rescued. And all of yeah. a sudden, the sea is erupting around them. And this turned out to be a Japanese uh, Sally bomber that decided to use these three men in a life raft for target practice. So my dad remembered uh, when he was a an Eagle Scout that bullets would lose their velocity in about three feet of water. So over the side they went. The problem is, is they'd been followed by a couple of sharks for weeks now, and the sharks were there in the water beneath them with them. So they dove down there, got underneath the raft, avoided the bullets that were going through the raft, and then they managed to, all three of them, get back into the raft after this plane passed as the sharks came up around the raft. Then the plane came back for another strafing run. Mm -hmm. This time, the other two guys were too weak to go in the water. My dad went in alone. And this is where he began his ballet with these sharks. The shark would come up and would turn sideways to kind of take a bite out of you. And he remembered from a survival class he took in Honolulu that the shark's nose is sensitive. So what he did is he straight-armed the shark. He put his hand out and pushed against the shark's snout to keep himself from being bitten. I said, well, Dad, did you slug the the shark? Did you, did you take a swipe at him? He goes, no, because if I had missed and my hand had gone in his mouth, I'd have been done. So he just strayed on him like a running back. Climbs back into the raft. The plane comes again. This plane stayed over them for 30 minutes, strafing the raft. And so he was doing this constant dance with the sharks and going back up and getting air and going back down until finally the plane left. And he was convinced that his uh, raft mates were now dead But when he got in the raft, he realized that none of them had been hit. Uh, Later on, when they were able to count the number of holes in the raft, they discovered there were 48 bullet holes in the raft and not a single injury. Uh, This was just miraculous, another miracle at sea.
0: And they had uh, equipment to close up those bullet holes.
1: They did have uh, patching kits, and they had a hand pump. And so they began to immediately start pumping up. There were two rafts to begin with. One raft is completely shredded from the strafing. And so the three of them got in the one remaining raft and started pumping. And they had to take turns pumping, and they pumped around the clock for several days because it took that long to be able to repair all the bullet holes because they had to deflate part of the raft and then pull the bottom up that was exposed to the, the sea, let it dry out, and then rough it up and apply this, the patches to it. So it was. It took several days for that to happen. And these guys were already emaciated, and now they're pumping for their lives. In the meantime, with this deflated raft being so low in the water, the sharks took to jumping over the raft and trying to snag the men out of the raft. And uh, the tail gunner became very useful in this endeavor. He had picked up the aluminum oars that they had, and he was fighting the sharks off. With the aluminum oars while my dad was continuing to try to patch the raft while the pilot was continuing to pump the raft full of air. You would have to have had a tremendous
0: will to live to have experienced this without giving up. In fact, one of the three did go a little berserk and didn't survive.
1: Yeah, on day 33, the tail gunner Francis McNamara uh, finally succumbed to Starvation. He was the least fit of the three. Uh, you know, my dad was an athlete and was always working out and staying fit. Uh, McNamara was a party boy, and uh, he just was unable to survive any longer. So he passed away on the night of the 33rd day, and uh, they uh, let him go. I asked him, said, Dad, did you ever think about eating McNamara? And he said, no, no, we never thought about it. We just we said what prayers we knew how to say, and then we just put them overboard and let them sink. Uh, and then mm-hmm. they went on another, well, another couple of weeks before they were finally rescued. Rescued by whom? Well, that's the rub in the story. Uh, they had finally uh, spotted land during a storm at sea, and it turned out this storm was a terrible typhoon that had hit that part of the Pacific. And the seas were like 40-foot seas. When they went to the top of of the breakers, they could see land some miles to the west. The very next day, they were starting to paddle towards these islands uh, when before they could reach the lagoon of, of this first island, a Japanese patrol boat had come around the other side of the island, spotted them, and picked them up. So they were rescued by the Japanese Imperial Navy. If you could call that being rescued... (laughs) <laughs> yes, so this began a 27-months of Japanese prison camp system for my dad. Mm. They were sent to an island that's called… Kwajalein uh, Island was nicknamed uh, Execution Island. And every prisoner that the Japanese captured in the Pacific that was brought to Kwajalein Island was executed by beheading. And this was to be the fate of my father and his raft mate, Phillips. What had happened instead was one of the officers there had— recognized that my dad was this famous American athlete. Apparently, the Japanese were big fans of American sports and movies, so they recognized American actors, American athletes. And this officer suggested that they not uh, execute these two prisoners and send them to Tokyo for potential propaganda purposes. So his life was spared there on Execution Island, and uh, then he was sent on to Tokyo.
0: And to another prison camp.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, hey, what did your dad weigh when he got there? When the Japanese pulled him out of the water, they weighed him, and this was a man who, in his first-class Olympic shape, weighed 155 pounds at five foot ten. The Japanese weighed him, and he weighed in at 66 pounds. So he'd lost all this body mass uh, in his ordeal at sea. And uh, the Japanese at that point also had counted the number of bullet holes in the raft. That's more than
0: 80 pounds he lost. Yeah.
1: Pretty amazing. Uh, and he's the only person that you'll ever have heard about that actually gained weight in a Japanese prison camp system.
0: Yeah. You were starting to say the number of bullet holes.
1: Yeah, the Japanese had, uh, you know, they were astonished when they saw these two men. Uh, and they pulled them on board. Once they pulled the raft up, the raft became their center of attention because— It had 48 bullet holes in it. The raft itself was beginning to deteriorate. The patches were beginning to blow up. The yellow rubber dye had been leached away by the ocean water. As a matter of fact, my dad and Phillips were stained yellow because of it. So when the Japanese saw the raft and started counting up the bullet holes, they became very inquisitive. So my dad explained to them that the, a Japanese Sally bomber had used them for target practice. And, of course, they didn't want to believe that could be true. They didn't think that their, or at least they said they didn't think that a Japanese pilots would, would stoop so low, but
0: they did. Yeah, but they had also executed others
1: that came to that island. So. That's right. So being sent to Japan, they thought, of course, they were going to be in a Red Cross supervised— uh, prisoner of war camp, and life would be much better than it was on the island of Kwajalein, which was quite brutal for them.
0: Mm. In what way? Tell us this now. The the movie was very disturbing uh, in regard to the brutality of that camp that they were in, but the truth of the matter was it was not really accurately portrayed um, because the producers of the film really didn't want people to be turned off by it, or you've described it?
1: Well, imagine, if you will, seven weeks on the open ocean, and then when the Japanese get you, they put you in a cell that is three foot wide, uh, six foot long, and seven foot high. They stayed in those cells for 43 days. So it was a complete environmental change that had profound effects on the, the prisoners. Of course, they were treated roughly. They were thrown rice balls to eat. Uh, they thought they were going to be uh, decapitated. Uh, and so the idea of moving on to a, a regular prison camp it was really appealing to them. So they put them on a ship, and the ship took a couple of weeks to get to the Tokyo Bay, and they were taken to a prison camp called Ofuna, which was a secret prison camp that the Red Cross didn't know about, And it's where the Japanese would put um, prisoners that had uh, fresh intelligence and they would treat them roughly and and torture them there and get them to talk. Now, my dad couldn't figure out why he was there because he'd already been a couple of months uh, away from Hawaii. He had no intelligence to give them. The B-24 that he was flying in was no longer the current model. So he had no idea why they kept him in a secret camp. But they kept him there for 13 months because they knew that anyone declared missing in action, after a year and a month, the War Department would put out a a declaration of their death. And so the Japanese were waiting for that declaration to come out, and then they tipped their hand to what they wanted to do with him. They offered to take him to uh, Radio Tokyo to do a broadcast. They told him he could write his own script. And he could say hello to his parents so that they would know that he's alive. And of course, the broadcast was preceded by them working up the idea that the American government had given up on him and erroneously listed him as killed in action, but in fact, he was safe and sound with the Japanese. And so he read his prepared statement to his parents, letting them know that he was alive. And he wrote it in such a way that they would understand it was really him. Now the Japanese said yeah you did a great job with that now we'd like you to read this on the next broadcast which was propaganda anti-american propaganda and he refused to do it he said I can't I can't say this is not true I will not be unfaithful to my country and uh so this began another uh year and a half of hell for him because they, at this point it assigned a brutally sadistic guard named Mutahiro Watanabe uh, to break him and try to get him to want to go back to Radio Tokyo and do the broadcast because the idea was that they'd put him up in a hotel and they'd feed him American food and he'd have a nice uh, cushy life. Instead, he opted to go back to prison camp and this is where Watanabe, also known as the bird, began to make his life miserable. And so he endured daily beatings from this man uh, for the remaining 17 months of the war. Uh, Watanabe could not break my father. And, of course, that's why the book is called Unbroken. And the movie. And the movie. And, uh, I mean, every day he would single him out for a beating, whether it was with a kendo stick uh, or one of his favorite things was he had a nice one-inch wide belt with a big iron buckle on it about two inches in diameter and he would swing that and hit him in the side of the head Uh, one night he came in and hit him in the side of the head with that buckle and just blood everywhere the bird pulls out a, a some toilet paper and says oh here and so my dad's you know staunching the bleeding with the toilet paper and thinking, I guess the guy can't be all that bad. He's actually being nice to me now. And as soon as he pulled the tissue away to look at it, he hit him again in the same place with the belt buckle and knocked him out completely. And this was just typical of the things he did. And he was singled out for some of this torture for a reason. The reason he was singled out was to break him, to make him want to go back and do the propaganda broadcast that he refused to do. And so all of that
0: terrible oppression that he went through and the physical beatings and the difficulties he experienced uh, was done for a purpose. In fact, that guard you're talking about was told to do this.
1: Uh, Yes. Yes, he was. And, of course, this particular guard uh, already had a reputation before my father met him, and he... Routinely beat the prisoners uh, uh, for almost no reason at all. So he
0: was sadistic in addition to the mission.
1: Yeah, he was sadistic, and I think they picked their best boy for the project and mm. assigned him to break Samparini. And he couldn't break him. Couldn't break him. Now, we had mentioned last time that my dad was a very defiant individual as a child. He channeled that defiance into sports and became this incredible athlete. And it was his defiance in prison camp that really kept him alive. And you know, every time he was beaten by the bird, what he wanted to do was strike back and kill him. He just knew that if he did that, they would end his life on the spot. Yeah. But it was his defiance that was able to keep him from being unbroken. Yeah.
0: Well, we've been kind of teasing for a couple of days about uh-huh. the fact that you've brought your wife, Lisa, with us. She's sitting here beside you if we can paint the picture for our listeners. And she said, she's not going to talk. And I said, you will. So uh, Watanabe was trying to get your dad to talk, and I'm trying to get Lisa to talk. My family will
2: love this. Uh
0: (laughs) You know these stories. You have lived with this. You've been married now for 31
2: years. 31
0: years. Is there anything that you want to elaborate on from what you've heard to this point? about your father-in-law and you got to know him and to love him too, didn't you?
2: Oh, absolutely. I could not have loved him anymore. I mean, he was was not just a remarkable dad and father-in-law, but Mm -hmm. the most incredible grandfather. uh, Our son, Clay, is his only grandchild. So Luke has one sister and she did not have children. So we have the one and only uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to carry on the Louis legacy and uh, he was just everything and more. Really he lived, lived to be
0: 97.
2: 97. And he was out doing speaking engagements up until just the day before we took him to the hospital. Uh, mm-hmm. So this last May 13th was his last speaking engagement. And you now I'm listening to the story again. And every time I hear it, I still marvel. And I'm always impacted by the number of miracles that it took to get his life to this point. And as Luke was speaking about defiance, I was actually sitting here anxiously thinking, OK, now let's talk about how that defiance ended up working yeah. in his Christian life and how, how things he, turned He wasn't around. a
0: Christian, but he did pray during this time. He was asking the Lord to spare him. He also made promises to the Lord.
2: He did, and I know they show that in the film the one scene during the typhoon where he says, God, if you spare me, spare my life, I will seek you and serve you. And that was the very thing that he later realized he uh, had gone back on, that he had come back. And I don't want to jump ahead too far, but uh, yes, he did um, absolutely make good on that promise.
0: Now, the uh, well-known perspective on your father-in-law, was that he was a national hero. In fact, the Congress has called him that. Uh, behind the scenes, did you see him that way? Oh, definitely. I mean, look, we're all human,
2: so there are funny things about him that, of course, as the family. We, we know little idiosyncrasies and things that were just classic to us. Endearing, but honestly, the integrity of this man was stellar. And I was so blessed to be part of his life and family. We had traveled together. He and I did a couple of cruises together. He would speak on this one particular cruise ship, Crystal Cruises, and was consistently funny, entertaining. People around always were completely caught off guard by his wit. He was very funny, very dry, Mm -hmm. and Uh, As far as his Christian perspective, I would say that what stood out to me so much was uh, that—we were talking about this earlier—is that he was not one to proselytize, that he would live by
0: example. Luke, let me jump in here with you to tell me how his time in that prison camp ended and uh, how in the
1: world did he manage to get home. Um, He had to survive 27 months in the Japanese prison camp system in three different camps. Uh, The second camp is the one where he met the bird in, and then the bird was transferred away. He was in
0: the camp where the sadistic uh, Japanese soldier in charge was determined to break him and determined to just uh, make him not even want to live really trying to get him to talk for propaganda purposes. Now, uh, that went on and on. Day by day by day, he went through this.
1: Yes, and then one day, the bird was transferred. And he came and said goodbye to what he called his friends, which were the, the prisoners. And, but they were all relieved to see him go. But a couple weeks later, the prisoners were transferred from that, that prison camp Omori, to another prison camp in Nagano, Japan, up in the very cold northern part of the, of the country. And when the prisoners were arrived at uh, Camp 4B in Nuetsu, they were called to stand at attention. And they stood there and they stood there and stood there. And then out of the building stepped the bird, Hmm. and so there was Watanabe hearts again. Must have
0: absolutely oh. sunk
1: my dad said it was the lowest ebb of his life and that uh, he actually got dizzy and started to faint and the other uh, prisoners had propped him up and so there was another several months of the bird in this camp 4B uh, and what these guys were tasked with doing was unloading the coal barges that were coming in and fueling the Japanese war machine but then Something miraculously happened. Whereas the Japanese were preparing for the Americans to invade their home islands, they had set up a kill-all order to say that when that happened, the Japanese prison guard system was going to then execute all the prisoners of war. And so the prisoners knew this was coming. It was set for late in August 1944. And instead, something happened. We're going to have to
0: stop again here because the story's not over. And uh, we're going to pick up right at this point to find out what happened at that point because it really resulted in your father's life being spared. And I won't tell our listeners any more about that now. You can be with us tomorrow again, right? Yes. Okay, Lisa, you did a good job, (laughs) and uh, we're going to pick up uh, down the road here by uh, getting more of your perspective. This uh, story touches me deeply. I I just can hardly believe that uh, prisoners eating very little, weighing at one point 66 pounds, and going through horrors that you can't. Really reproduce in a conversation like this. And in fact, if you tried to tell it, uh, people would be so disturbed that they wouldn't listen. And yet, we need to know the price that these men paid for our liberty, especially today when there's so much hostility to this great nation. So, we're going to hear the rest of the story next time, right at this point. Thank you guys for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It is rare that a story is so captivating that it requires three days to cover it, but there is so much more to this story. You don't want to miss the conclusion of this broadcast. Uh, Louis Zamperini is a true war hero and an amazing man, and we haven't covered yet the best part of the story. If you would like more information about Louis Zamperini or his book that was written right before he died. It was called Don't Give Up, Don't Give In. Please visit our website, drjamesstobson.org or call us at 877-732-6825. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to having you with us next time for the conclusion of our interview with Luke and Lisa Zamperini on the next edition of Family Talk.
2: Family Talk is not associated with Focus on the Family.
0: Join the platform that has over 9 million people engaging daily. Families from all over are coming to one common place to interact, receive advice, and learn some of the well-known tips that Dr. Dobson has to share. Family Talk's Facebook page is full of inspiration and helpful tips for your family. Don't miss out and join us today. Visit Facebook.com slash dr. james dobson's family talk that's facebook.com slash dr. james dobson's family talk